If you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Starting in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of his people, from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Cush, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will rise a signal for the nations and will assemble the banished of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. The jealousy of Ephraim shall depart and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. But they shall swoop down on the shoulder of the Philistines in the west and together they shall plunder the people of the east. They shall put out their hand against Edom and Moab, and the Amorites shall obey them. And the Lord will utterly destroy the tongue of the sea of Egypt, and will wave his hand over the river with his scorching breath, and strike it into seven channels, and he will lead people across in sandals. And there will be a highway from Assyria for the remnant that remains of his people, as there was for Israel when they came up from the land of Egypt. Thank you. thus far we could probably just say amen and go home it's been a wonderful service already it doesn't get brought up enough well, I want to thank our leadership in our music uh, both Wayne and, and Linda you guys have done an awesome job um, and uh, not to give you the glory but to give the Lord the glory for assembling the team that he has here um Along those lines, uh, so nobody today really knew, except for passages, what we were preaching this morning. Uh, I didn't get a chance to really dive in and study until yesterday, uh, just because of the schedule I've had this last week. Um, and I really think if it's okay with Wayne, um, if, if it's okay, if we do... Um, Great is Thy Faithfulness, the offertory song, if we do that for our invitation, I think that would be perfectly fitting. Linda had no idea, but that is the perfect song for the theme what we have going on today. So, yeah. Huh? There you go. Absolutely. So, praise the Lord. Absolutely. Um, it goes right along. So, I've got it. I've already got it bookmarked up here for you and wrote down what number it is. So, yeah. So, got you covered there, Wayne. God has certainly been good in what he is doing here in our church. Early in 2013, um, God laid a call on my life. Um, he had already called me to full-time ministry. I had been pursuing education in that direction. But by the beginning of 2013, I was nearing the completion of my Master of Divinity degree, uh, preparing for a lifetime of ministry. 
I knew God wanted me to continue my education. And at that time, I had four options standing in front of me. I could stay where I was, where we were in North Carolina, uh, where we were very comfortable, working at a church that we loved with steady jobs. I could go to New York and work with one of the uh, most brilliant minds in my area of study. I could also go to Kentucky. Or at the time, my least favorite option, I could go to Southwestern Baptist Theological Seminary in Fort Worth, Texas. My wife and I discussed often what we desired and prayed about where God would take us. And then after setting foot on campus at Southwestern and meeting the faculty in my department, I called Charity to let her know how things were going. As she answered the phone, my opening words hardly surprised her. I told her, I think God is calling us to Texas. Her response was, I knew that was going to happen. <laughs> After I got home, we awaited decisions from schools, and even though we received, we actually received acceptance letters from every school that, we, that I applied to, the acceptance from Southwestern ultimately confirmed God's call. With much more prayer and lots of asking, are you sure? God confirmed both of us that he was taking us to Texas. With much, let me be clear here, much humility and some grumbling, we submitted to his call. The season before we moved and after we moved were by no means easy, but we knew that what we were doing, we were doing what God had called us to do, and so we pressed forward. This morning, we're going to look at God's call on the life of Abraham. I can relate a lot to Abraham. He's by no means perfect. In fact, throughout Abraham's life, he shows himself to be just a work in progress. Whereas Noah is introduced as already a righteous man, Abraham is a much slower learner, just like I am. So let's read our passage this morning and pray together and jump into the text. We're going to be in, uh, starting in Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. Turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27, and we'll read through, verse, through chapter 12. Genesis chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. It says, Now these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the, wife of and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren, she had no children. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai his wife, or his daughter-in-law, excuse me, uh, his son Abram's wife, and they went forward together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told, them, told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, and Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his brother's son and all their possessions that they had gathered and the people that, had been, that, had acquired, that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place, to the, uh, to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At the time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country to the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. 
When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai's wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, and they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dwelt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you give us this text. Lord, these are not just history stories or history lessons, but Lord, you give us this text to show us how we ought to live. Lord, to show us how, how human even your best servants are. I pray, God, that as we consider your calling on each of our lives, that we would respond in a way that brings you glory, that we would respond in obedience and faith and trust. Praise in your name. Amen. This morning in our passage, we first see that God requires total obedience. We see that God requires total obedience. Now, as we enter into uh, 1127 and following, uh, it seems that all hope was lost. Before this, remember what took place in the, in the passage just before this, at the beginning of chapter 11. Humanity had, had come out from the flood and had essentially gone right back to their evil ways into this extremely prideful events at the Tower of Babel. But now God was setting things right by making a name for Abraham, where they made a, tried to make a name for themselves. Now God was making a name for Abraham, and he says that, as much in chapter 12, verse 2, he says that I will make a name for you. This list of names here in 27 through, uh, through 32 is actually very interesting in function. Um, so f- he, he lists here, he lists eight different names of people. And which, what that really does, ends up anticipating the reader to look forward for the other two names. Earlier in Genesis, the author has had a habit of listing ten people before an important individual was mentioned. So the reader here is stopped short. He only lists eight people. So a, a reader that's paying attention to this would say, well, wait, where are the other two? This is, you've been mentioning ten before you mentioned somebody important, so where are the other two people? Why'd you stop short? In fact, it seems that this number of people is actually important to the story because there's a li- every single person in this narrative, in this list of names, is really intentional. Every single one of these people has something to do with the following chapters except one. You see in, chapter, in verse 29, Haran was the father of Milcah and Iscah. We learn nothing else about Iscah. It's almost like he's kind of randomly placed in there, like he's, he's not really that important of a person, but he had to be there for some reason. So what's the purpose of listing Iska? Because he needed to make eight people, because he wanted to draw your attention to the, the, the fact there's two more people you're waiting for. Is it possible that Abraham and Nahor, and, uh, or that Terah and, and, and Nahor and Haran had other children? It's possible, absolutely. But why are only these ones mentioned? Because he's making a list of eight people to draw your attention to what's going to happen next. So then you ask the question, where are the other two? Where are they? Well, this question will get answered over the next 12 or so, 12 to 15 chapters as we go through Abraham's life. As the narrative unfolds over the next several chapters, we find the ninth and tenth names are Ishmael and Isaac. 
Abraham gives birth to Ishmael and then to Isaac, the tenth, that is Isaac being the fulfillment of God's blessing. And through Isaac, ultimately, Christ would come. Another interesting note about this passage, this section here in the, early, in the end of 11, is in verse 30, it mentions a very interesting, uh, a very interesting detail. Uh, a detail that actually functions to, to give a trajectory for the rest of the, this narrative. It says, now Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now, up until this point, we've been hearing about people having kids. This person has kids. This person has kids. Every single one of the people has kids. And now we run into somebody who's the exception to that rule. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is barren. And he repeats that. She has no children. He could have just said she was barren, but in fact, he emphasized she was barren. She had no children. She could not have children. And that becomes, again, that becomes a major plot point throughout the rest of these chapters. God then, well, we see, we see here in verse 31 and 32 that uh, Terah took Abraham and Lot, and they, they started moving towards, towards Canaan. Um, they started going towards there, which assumes that there was probably some kind of call. In fact, in, in uh, Genesis chapter 15 and verse 7, uh, God says that he called Abraham from Ur of the Chaldeans, which is probably then there's a, there's a call that's not mentioned here. But that what happens is they start heading that way, and what happens? They stop. They start heading back west. Remember, we've been seeing this movement east, away from the promised land, and now they're moving back west, but instead of completing the task, instead of getting all the way to Canaan, they stop in the land of Haran. They don't make it the whole way there. They stop short. In fact, it's, it seems that Moses has neglected to, or has, has purposely left out and waited to bring up God's call to Abraham until after this moment, because it seems then it, 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 it makes this appear and, and see that here that they, they were trying to do this in their own strength. They were trying to go to the land of Canaan in their own strength without the power of God behind them, without God helping them through. And of course, they fail to do so. They fail to make it all the way there. They stop. They stop short of God's call. But then we have here where God then brings up this call again, very likely a second time. God brings this call to Abraham again and, and, and calls, uh, uh, brings this call in his life. And Because again, we see in verse 4 that Abraham leaves from Haran to go, uh, to go to Canaan. But here's God's call to Abraham. This is interesting. It says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. What a promise. What an incredible promise. But this call, this promise, comes with a high demand, with a very high cost. He says here, leave your country, your family, and your father's house, or the place of your birth. Leave everything behind and go to Canaan. Now to Abraham's ears and to ours as well, there's a high cost that he pays here. Abraham Caravilla, not related necessarily. Anyway, notes. Relational and socioeconomic ties were all to be severed. In the ancient social order, as for most humans who have ever lived, family and territory were an individual's primary hold on life-sustaining resources and a bulwark against adversarial encroachments. This is what God asked Abraham to renounce. No less. God was asking for a faithful obedience from Abraham at great cost to himself and to all his. Yet the benefit would be considerable both to the patriarch and to the descendants and even to the rest of the world. There's a high call indeed, but the blessing that is, the, the benefits are to be considerable. He asks Abraham for full and total trust. Leave everything that you know, leave everyone that you care about and go where I tell you to go. 
leave it all behind and follow me. Go where I'm going to tell you to go. God's promise here, and we'll see this promise repeated, it, it, it holds forth a promise of land, seed, and blessing. He says, I will give you a land. I will give you, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. He gives him a promise of land. He says, go from your country to the land that I'm going to give you. I'm going to make from you a great nation, right? That's seed. And he says, you are going to be a blessing. In fact, in verse 3, it says, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So he promises land, seed, and blessing. He would receive a land, a great nation would come from him, and all the nations would be blessed through him. There's nothing particularly special about Abraham. If you remember in the flood, it says when, when God chooses Noah, it says that Noah was a righteous man. It doesn't say that here about Abraham. It just says that God chooses him. There's nothing special about him. He's not said to be a righteous man, at least not yet. God chooses him and will begin to mold and shape him for the rest of his life. In fact, the rest of this narrative goes through uh, all of Abraham's many trials. And these trials will finally result with him learning to trust God. Like us, Abraham's life is a work in progress. As he moves in faith toward blessing, God will see to this blessing personally. Notice, notice how God describes this blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. God says this blessing is going to happen. I'm going to make sure it happens. I'm guaranteeing that it will take place. As we'll go through Abraham's life, however, we'll only see one of these one of these promises fulfilled in his lifetime. Only the, only the promise of, of, of a seed will actually take place in Abraham's lifetime. Only the fact that he has a son. But as we will already see, as we're going to see in these next several chapters, the promise of the son is delayed almost excruciatingly for the, for the reader. Right? Where is his son? Okay, he's going to have a son. He's 75 years old. That better happen soon. It's 20 Five more years before the promised son comes. This promise is delayed. After the, after the promise, it would be, after this promise is given, it's, it's actually 25 more years before Isaac is born. The delay of the birth of Isaac becomes one of the major themes of Abraham's narrative. In fact, here we are in chapter 12. It's not till chapter 21 that I Isaac is born. So we see here, God, God, God actually, again, we see this call requires total obedience. God's call requires total obedience. God's call required total obedience from Abraham. As the passage tells us, as this passage tells us, and as Jesus re reiterated in the gospel, God's call on us requires total obedience. To be a follower of Christ will cost you. It will cost you, it will, it will not cost you money necessarily, but obediently following Christ will demand that you submit your desires to his desires. So it's not like becoming a Christian is not like, well, all right, God, I've got to give you $5,000 and then you'll let me be a Christian, right? That's not how it works. The, the gift of salvation is offered freely, but to submit to Christ is to say, my desires no longer matter. All I want is what you want. That is what a follower of Christ does. Following Christ will demand that you give up your own comfort, your own selfish motivation, anything that may become an idol in your life. Look at what Jesus says about those who would follow him. In John chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, he says, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. He requires complete and total obedience. Jesus says, if you want to follow me, you need to be obedient to everything I have said. John chapter 13, verse 35, he says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Another cost of being a disciple is that there are other people that you have responsibility towards. There are one another's that we call local church that we have responsibility towards. 
Luke chapter 9, verse 23, it says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If you want to follow me, you need to put on an instrument of torture and come and follow me. Put on your cross daily and follow me. Luke 14, 26, he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Just like God called Abraham, leave your relatives, leave everything behind and, and go to where I've called you. Jesus says the same thing. Be willing to leave everything behind. You may lose your parents, you may lose everything, you may lose all of your relationships, but follow me. And Luke 14, 33 says, anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You need to give up everything. Nothing has changed from Genesis 12 to the Gospels. Nothing has changed. The call to follow God, the call to be a disciple is a high call and it comes with a high cost. So how are you responding to God's call on your life? Now maybe you're sitting here this morning, you'd say, Pastor, God hasn't called me to anything specific, so I'm good, right? I'm fine. Nonsense. Nonsense. First of all, if you are not a believer, God is calling you to repent and trust Christ for your salvation. That is the first and most important call that God calls you to. If you are a believer, you may not call to be a, be called to be a pastor or be a founder of a nation like Abraham was, or to go to seminary and go, to, go and do schooling, or to spend the rest of your life on a foreign mission field. But rest assured, God is calling you to walk in obedience. I could list many different areas, but let me focus on one particular command or call to the believer. Every Christian, according to Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, is called to take the gospel to the nations. And Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 tells us that that starts where you are, right where you are. So let me ask you, is sharing the gospel to your neighbor a priority for you? Is loving this community, revealing God's glory to them and speaking the good news of the gospel to them, is that a priority for you? Now, be honest with the Lord. How are you responding to God's call on your life. If you're at all challenged by your response, let me give you some good news. At First Baptist Gordon, we're going to help create opportunities for you to get involved in what God is doing to redeem people unto himself in Gordon. You've heard from Albert a couple of those, a couple of those possibilities, and so very soon, starting in Sunday afternoons, we'll be finding ways to serve the community and take the gospel to them. Will you commit now to get involved? Will you make a plan now to clear your Sunday afternoon calendar to get involved in what God is doing in Gordon, Texas? Not only does God's call require total obedience, but secondly, this morning, we see that even in disobedience, God remains faithful. Even in disobedience, God remains faithful. God's tactic to fulfill his purposes seems kind of odd so far. Let's recap, right? God has called Abraham and said, through you, all the nations are going to be blessed. You're going to have land. You're going to, have a, you're going to become a great nation. You're going to be a blessing to everyone. But then let's think back. Who is he called? Right? He, he's, 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 his, his, one of his commissions to mankind is to be fruitful and multiply. And he's promised in chapter 3 that the seed of a woman will bring salvation. Yet he picks a childless couple to further his schemes. And moreover, he asks them to leave every human connection possible. Country, relatives, father's house. God's plans are carried out here only when one fully, fully trusts him. The problem, of course was that the man and the woman he chooses here were not particularly inclined to trust the Lord. 
at least not totally, not yet. In fact, it is this hesitation to trust God that drives the rest of the Abraham narrative up to the climax of the narrative in Genesis chapter 22, when the very promised son, God tells Abraham, sacrifice him for me. We'll deal with that more when we get to Genesis chapter 22. But let's see how Abraham responds here immediately. God has given him this promise. He's given him this command. And so at the very beginning of verse 4, it looks like things go well. It says, and so Abram went. Immediate obedience, right? All right, we're off on the right foot, Abram. Let's do this, right? Right off the bat. But as we'll see, having been given the promise of land, seed, and blessing, Abraham now proceeds to act in distrust of all these aspects of the divine word. To give a summary of the rest of what we're going to see today, he takes Lot, assuming that his nephew will be his heir. The seed promised is disbelieved. The, the seed promise is disbelieved. He leaves the land of Canaan after he gets there to go to Egypt. The land promise dismissed. And by his deception of Pharaoh, he brings about plagues upon Egypt. The blessing promise disregarded. You don't have to remember all that. We'll unpack all these things one at a time. First of all, we see this really interesting. Remember, God had just told him, leave your family, leave everybody behind, leave everything, and come to the land of Canaan. And what do we see? We see Abraham goes, good news, right? He goes as the Lord had told him. And you can't even get done with verse 4 before you find this. And Lot went with him. Come on, Abraham. Really? You just started and already you can't fulfill the promise. You can't obey. Leave your relatives and, hey, nephew, come on with me. Why Why would he bring Lot with him? Why in the world would this even make sense to him? He's told to leave his relatives. He knew that his, so at this, we've already seen the text, and, we, and he, he would know, he knew that his wife was barren, that he was already 75 years old. He must not have thought much about his own ability to produce a child. Must have thought, it's going to be a seed for me? That's nah, probably not going to happen. Sorry, Lord. I'm 75. My wife can't have kids. It's probably not going to take place. And we would not necessarily fault him for thinking that, right? Thus, it seems that he brought his nephew with him as an insurance plan, just in case, just in case God was not able to fulfill the promise of the seed. Abraham Abraham begins his journey without complete reliance on God already. He brings then, he brings spiritual baggage with him. The fact that he can't trust the Lord, he begins his journey already not being able to trust. Then we continue on here in in chapter 12, verse 6 through 9. We see kind of Abraham getting to the land of Canaan and what he does there. It says, uh, Abram passed through the land to the place of Shechem to the oaks of Moreh. At the time the Canaanites were in the land, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the, wa- and the, on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abraham journeyed on, Abram journeyed on, still getting toward the Negev. He begins to survey the land that God would give him. God appears to him. This is the first time God appears to someone, or at least is described in this way, that God appears to someone in Genesis. Abraham builds an altar there in the north of the land and then builds another altar, right? He's also the first person to build two altars in Genesis. He builds one altar in the north. He builds one in the middle and one in the middle of the land. If you were to see, map this out geographically. And then in chapter 13, verse 18, we see he builds a third altar at the southern border. Spiritually speaking, then, we see Abraham is possessing the land. But, right, that would be good news, except for what comes next. Verse 10 says, now there was a famine in the land, and the famine was severe. 
so Abram, it says there was famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. God says, hey, come to Canaan, I'm going to give you this land. He starts seeming like he's going to possess the land, but then he's like, oh, this famine's, this famine's kind of tough. I'm going to Egypt, right? It seems here that with, this is without God's approval necessarily. He abandons his trust in the Lord. He never, the text never tells us that God told Abraham to go to Egypt. Thus it would appear that Abraham, this, this was Abraham's own unfaithful initiative which led this action. Everything seems to begin to unravel as Abraham makes a deal with his wife to lie about their relationship. Right? He abandons the land and goes to Egypt and then says, Hey, honey, just, if anybody asks, just tell them you're my sister. Right? Abraham essentially throws his wife into the arms of another man to save his own skin. After Pharaoh abducts his wife, he just says, okay. Now imagine for a second, let's put this into some context. When God called us to come here to Gordon, Texas, what if I had said, Charity, you're really cute. We're, you're, you're hot, okay? You're really good looking. And if anybody asks, just tell people you're my sister, right? Because I really don't want to get killed because of you. Because that would happen in Gordon. Just kidding. <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Well, let's say I had, I had started out with that. We, that's how we came to Gordon is, that's my sister. I don't know what you're talking about be awkward because we had a kid but anyway just for sake of argument let's just say that and then somebody was like man your sister's cute you mind if I date her and I'm like go ahead right this is what Abraham is doing here guys this is what he's doing he essentially says hey this is my wife. yeah she's my sister um yeah go ahead and have her that'd be great really Abraham just to save his own skin. I don't want to die. Right? Another instance of not trusting the Lord. It's interesting. The text does not tell us what happens to her. Now, whether or not Pharaoh had any kind of relationship with her. But later when Abraham does this same thing again, and his wife is abducted by Abimelech, the text makes a point to say that Abimelech did not touch her. Here, the text makes no such point. Whatever takes place in Pharaoh's household, the fault is, is laid plainly on Abraham. The fault of all this is laid plainly on Abraham. It says here um, at, the, at the end of this, um, when, uh, when Pharaoh confronts Abraham about this, it says, what, ha what is this that you have done to me? The fault is clearly with Abraham in this whole entire instance. Rather than being a blessing to the nations, Abraham has become a curse to the nations. Look at what happens here. After this takes place, Pharaoh takes his wife, and Abraham essentially gets rich off of this deal, right? So he, get, he ends up with all sorts, of, all sorts of wealth. But then it says, The Lord afflicted Pharaoh in his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. Now what was God... What did God told him that he was going to do? You're going to be a blessing to all the nations. And here Abraham is making decisions that causes him to be a curse to the nations. Systematically, Abraham is dismantling the promise that God has done, or is showing at least mistrust in the promise that God has made to him. I will give you land, I will give you seed, I will give you a blessing. Bring in Lot just in case God can't produce a seed. I'm going to leave the land because there's, it's famine, you know, and I, I don't know if God can do that. And then he brings calamity on a nearby nation. Systematically, he is showing his lack of faith. And Abraham is called to repentance. But notice it's not the Lord necessarily that calls him to repentance, although I'm sure the Lord is working through Pharaoh. It's a pagan leader of a pagan nation that calls him to repentance. What are you doing? And essentially, Pharaoh tells him something very similar to what God had told Abraham just earlier in the chapter. He says, now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Go back. 
Go back to the land of Canaan. Get out of here. Which is essentially, in much nicer terms, what God had told Abraham earlier in the chapter. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. This passage is summarized really well by Kuravilla. He says, we see here the divine promise of land, seed, and blessing given to Abraham. And as soon as the promise is offered, Abraham proceeds to act without faith in it. He takes a lot of long disbelieving the promise of seed. He absconds from Canaan to Egypt, dismissing the promise of land. And he manages to get the royal house of Egypt afflicted with plagues, disregarding the promise that he would be a blessing to the nations, all because of his lack of faith. On the other hand, faithful obedience involves sacrifice and a relinquishing of human stratagems in favor of an unshakable trust in God's working. Despite all of these things that Abraham is doing, God is faithful. God is faithful to Abraham. Even when Abraham does not act in faith, God uses Abraham to tell the story of the future children of Abraham and the future story of the ultimate promised seed. Indeed, the people of Israel would go back to Egypt and be enslaved there. And then God would call them out to return to the promised land in the book of Exodus. And in the Gospels, Jesus' earthly parents, this time by the prompting of the Lord, would flee to Egypt to avoid being killed by Herod. And Jesus would return to the promised land to bring salvation to God's people. So these things that Abraham does, even in his disobedience, God uses that disobedience even to fulfill his ultimate promises and to tell the story of what would happen in the future. Even in his disobedience, God was still working. Such a faithful God calls us back to obedience. God is faithful. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 13 says this, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. God doesn't need us. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need you. He didn't need Abraham. He's perfectly capable to fulfill his purposes without us if he wanted to. But he still gives us the opportunity to join, in, to join in with his mission. Rest assured, you and I will be just like Abraham and doubt God's plan. Each of us, at some point or another, will lack the faith to fully obey God. This is yet another reason why Jesus is not just for the moment of salvation. When you give your life to Christ, he forgives all your sins, past, present, and future. We are given His righteousness. We can rely on His faithfulness. What a joy to know that my salvation is not contingent on my performance. Such truths of the gospel ought to draw us to our knees and, and drive us to such a great Savior. Such truths ought to renew our spirits and call us, back, call us back to the mission that God has given us. People who faithfully come to church and participate in the local church are not doing so because they're great Christians. People don't come to church and serve in a church because they are great Christians. No. Those are the ones those who are most involved in the life of the local church are those who have found that they serve a great God. Those who are most involved are those who realize that they have nothing to offer. They have nothing of any real value. Those who actively share their faith are those who have come to understand that they have nothing apart from Christ. And they are filled with the urgent desire to see others find their satisfaction in Him. So what about you? If you find yourself faithless like Abraham did was, will you re-engage in God's purposes? You don't have to be important or, or, or specifically gifted or, or super spiritual to be used by God. All you need to do is trust Him and walk in obedience. 
resting in the knowledge that even when you fail, he will never fail. His promises are certain. What a great God we serve. About a year after God called us to Texas, my wife and I sat down, considering what the last year had taken us, what had happened over the last year, and we made a list. This list you'll find on our refrigerator. Um, it's only up to date to that day. Um, there, this list could probably be a few hundred more pages long. But after coming to Texas, after about a year, God did many things for us. At the time, we had two cars. We weren't sure how we were going to get the second car here. Well, God took care of that. Not in the way we expected, but he got rid of one of the cars for us. He made it financially possible for us to be able to move here. We weren't sure how that was going to happen. And God provided the way. When we first got to Texas, God got us both jobs on campus shortly after we arrived. Me, before we even arrived, I came here with a job ready to go. All I had to do was show up. That's, that's provision. We had interviewed at a church shortly after we got here, and it all, that fell through, which is really discouraging, and it was especially hard on charity. There's a great group of ladies that, were, that came around charity, friends of ours that she had talked to on Facebook that surrounded her and shared with her that it's all okay and that God is still working. We had friends of ours that, that sent us financial help that we would not, would not have been able to survive that first year without. A few months after we got here, God provided me with a student ministry position, which came with a house, which was also a blessing. That church provided all the furniture. We didn't, have to, we didn't have to pay for a stick of furniture. In fact, to this day, we still haven't really paid for a stick of furniture that we own. Uh, a few months into my student ministry, I had a, a family at the church bought me some suits. Didn't expect that. Every single time I had tuition bills that were coming up, every time they were taken care of. God was able to bring us to a place of getting better health insurance so we could start planning for a family. Our car insurance was able to go down, saved us some money there. We made some great friends at our church that we were at. We made some, go we made some good friends at the school. Made some great friendships with some great professors. I had an excellent advisor. I'd gotten connected with another man who later became my advisor after the, that first advisor passed away. We were serving at a very generous church that often helped us with financial difficulties. We ended up with two really close friends at that church that we're still very close to today. God helped me with areas of time management that I was very poor at. And the list goes on. And since that time, I can continue to count God's blessings on us. The way God has provided every step of the way. We've never not been able to pay a bill. I don't know how that happened. But every time, God was able to provide the finances we needed to take care of all the needs that we had. Now, why would all those things take place? Why would we be able to look back at that and say, we know that that was God? Because we were obedient to a call. He interrupted our lives and said, hey, I'm going to send you to Texas. And we prayed, Lord, not there. <laughs> and that's where he brought us. And instead of being a place that we thought would be a place of cursing, God has made it a place of blessing. Not without trial, trust me. And definitely not with wealth. Trust me. <laughs> But God has continued to be faithful. I can promise you this. If you are faithful to God's call in your life, if you are obedient to God's call in your life, he will be faithful to you. Because God is that kind of a God. He is faithful, even when we're faithless. 
I can tell you there are times since we have come to this state that we've said, I don't know how it's going to happen. I've schemed and I've planned and I can't figure it out. I don't think God, I don't think, maybe, maybe we made the wrong decision. Maybe this isn't what God called us to do. And God continued to be faithful even when we were faithless. Because God cannot deny himself and the promises that he gives. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior. The God of the universe took on humanity and suffered and died at the hands of evil men so that we could have life. And not only did he die, he rose from the grave three days later. That is a call that God gives to every single human on the face of this planet. Will you respond in obedience to that call? Will you trust Christ as your Savior? If you're not a believer, answer that call first. Accept Christ, believe and trust in Christ as your Savior. And then secondly, this morning, if you are a believer, how are you responding to God's divine call in your life? Are you trusting Him in faith? Or are you being disobedient and faithless? Do you need to recommit yourself to join in the, of Christ, join in Christ's work? This is something we have to do pretty often, if you're honest with, if we're honest with ourselves. We need to realign ourselves with God's work. Maybe you need to do that today. Are you taking the gospel to the nations? Is serving where God has placed you, is that a priority in your life? Let's pray. Holy Father, we do thank you for your great faithfulness as we're about to sing about. You are faithful. Your faithfulness to us is great. It is something we do not deserve at all. Lord, we are way too often faithless, yet you remain faithful because you cannot deny yourself. Lord, there's nothing great about me. There's nothing great about Abraham. There's only something great about you. You are faithful to fulfill your promises and to provide salvation for us. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be obedient to, that, to the calls that you have placed in our life. Or if there's someone here who does not know you as Savior, that they would come to know you. Lord, may you call us to repentance and to realign us with, with your purposes. In your name.